Good morning and welcome to Scaramanga's uh, latest podcast where we're talking today about communication during a crisis. Um, we have two guests with us today, uh, Jim Preen and David Asker. I'll let you introduce yourselves, Jim. Thank you very much, Claire. We're delighted to be um, here on this podcast today. I'm Jim Preen, as you know. Um, I'm a crisis management specialist. I've been doing that for more than 20 years. I'm with various agencies and so forth. Uh, currently, I'm a freelance consultant. And my kind of major job is running crisis simulation exercises for banks, building societies, um, major retailers, and so forth. I also write crisis plans and conduct media training with senior executives. Prior to that, I was a journalist mostly at ABC News, the American TV network, where I covered the first uh, Gulf War, the Bosnian War. And it wasn't all wars. There were some other nice stories, too. And I won two Emmys for my work while I was doing that. So that's me, former journalist, now really a crisis communication specialist, I suppose. Thank you very much. And welcome, Jim. And David. Yes. Hello, Claire. Good morning. And uh, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I suppose, in a way, I'm your worst nightmare, because if you meet me, something's gone horribly wrong. I am an authorised High Court Enforcement Officer. They used to call us sheriffs. Over the last 40 years, I've been dealing with enforcing High Court writs, but of course that brings me into contact with protesters. And as we've seen over recent years, and particularly on the HS2 um, project, Dealing with people who are disrupting business by locking themselves on or seeking to prevent people getting on site, etc., um, is quite a difficult undertaking. Um, and particularly recently, in the last year or so, I've had a lot of dealings with our friends from Just Stop Oil. So what, what I do, the service I provide, is somewhat prescient for matters of business continuity. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very much and welcome to you as well, David. So let's kick off by sort of starting to look at, first of all, how an organisation can prepare for an unexpected and potentially challenging event. OK, well, if I can jump in there, um, I think the first thing, it may sound obvious, but I think the first thing you've got to have is a plan. You know, you need to you need to know who's part of the incident team. You need to understand their roles and responsibilities. And the plan, I mean, you think of these big business continuity plans as these great dusty tomes. But actually, these days, quite a lot of plans are really quite short. Sometimes they're called playbooks. So you would have a playbook for a particular type of incident, you know, maybe for a terror incident or a cyber incident, something like that. And you just have the important information contained in those playbooks to help you through a crisis. And there's nothing sort of magical and extraordinary about it. They're really kind of like handrails, if you will. You know, it's a bit like, I always think of it's a bit like a pilot flying a plane. I assume a pilot knows how to fly a plane, but they constantly have checklists and so forth to look at, to make, you know, to keep them on track. And I think that's, that's very much what, um, what a, a crisis plan will be. And, you know, any plan, I think, is better than a blank canvas. But I'd also say that there's the old army thing about no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And plans may need to be updated and so forth um, during a crisis. But I think you need that plan there. And I mean, I can talk more about what should be contained in the plan. But, um, David, I, get, I, I don't want to talk too much. David, over to you. What's your thoughts on this? Well, I would echo very much your sentiment. In fact, one of my major jobs, although it's quite often said of me that it's a case of jaw-jaw rather than war-war, effectively, 
you need to plan for this. And playbook is a good description. Now, one of the jobs that I do for some of these infrastructure, national infrastructure sites, um, is literally put together a standard operating procedure is what to do if, if the great unwashed turn up and block access or if you have strange things, even travellers arriving in a field next door can cause major business disruption. And it's little things like that. The way they come out, once the plan is written, the best way of testing it is to do putative tests. You basically say, OK, at 11 o'clock, Monday morning, unbeknownst to everybody except the senior management, we're going to have an exercise as to what to do. And this really sort of tests one's responsiveness. Where we come in is, of course, what what you do if, if when you when you find, for example, quite a few businesses find that they're not they're not in a controversial area, that they're they're running an ordinary industry, but somebody nearby is running an infrastructure um, which is um, somewhat controversial. Say they're an oil storage depot, protesters turn up, block access, and suddenly they find their business is suffering. And it's what one can do about that. I mean, it's, I think that's really interesting, David. I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, I run a lot of tests and exercises as well. I'm quite surprised to hear you say that you don't tell senior management that you're going to run an exercise, because largely, almost exclusively, I would say that I do, simply because there's always the worry that the senior executives could be made to look a little foolish if they don't handle the situation well. And I, I may, maybe it's just my, I've got my client's hat on, but I'm always a bit careful. Maybe it doesn't matter to you. I don't know. But I'm always a little worried about <laughs> making my clients look foolish. So, uh, but just, 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 just before you I come think, back. Yeah, go on, go on, go on. I think I was guilty of a misdescription there. When I say at certain levels, they don't know about it. It's much, much lower down than that. Senior management are aware of it. No oh, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. It's mainly because when these ta- they, we call them tabletop exercises, and when they've been done in the past, what you sometimes find is because everyone knows it's an exercise, it isn't taken too seriously, um, and so the, it, it depends on the business and the personalities involved. But quite frequently, only cert- at a certain level, we'll know actually it's an exercise. But for the purposes for the purposes of the operation, lots of people think, "Oh, crikey, this is real." Um, that, once it starts and once it's underway. People are very soon appraised of the fact actually this is a simulation. But it does throw up some interesting things. Because when it's been done as a pure simulation, the atmosphere is very different. And you don't tease out those details, things that can, things that can make all the difference between something being resolved the same day or taking several days. Yeah, and I, I think the point to make here is what you're trying to achieve here is you are basically not testing people. Well, you are kind of testing people, but really you're testing your plan to see whether there are any gaps within the plan. And people might think, well, why do why do we need this? Why, why is this something? Why do we need this plan and so forth? And I think I, my answer to that is that if you have a crisis or if, if you have a serious incident, you're going to be under incredible scrutiny from all your stakeholders, you know, all your, the regulators, the suppliers, um, maybe the emergency services. You know, if, it, if, it's, if a crisis is big enough, the, the media may be interested and see if, if there's a story in it for them. And also there's all the internal audiences as well. There's 
there's going to be scrutiny from staff and families and so forth. And they're all asking the same question. What does this mean for me? What is what does this mean for me? And what they're all looking for, basically, is strong leadership and reassurance that there is a plan in place. There's something in place that is going to provide an effective response to whatever the crisis might be. And the key to all of that, of course, is a bit hackneyed, I know, but it is communication. And one of the, the first things that collapses whenever we do a test and often when we hit the ground running, when, when there's been an incident, communication always wobbles. It may not collapse, but it always wobbles because it's, it is human nature. I think people tend to into, if, if something happens that's unexpected, no matter how often you've planned for it, people do tend to internalize it, even people in positions of leadership and one of the one of the reasons for doing these tabletop exercises and sometimes doing one of the things that's worked quite well in the past is rather than a formal tabletop exercise, we do it. We've quite often done an operational demonstration because, for example, if you're dealing with interruptions, to your business that involves third parties from outside involves people rather than events. People are probably the hardest thing to deal with. And of course, when I refer to people quite often in my case, my experience of this is people that shouldn't be there protesters, um, squatters, what have you, um, what will happen is the personalities involved in this will come to the fore and it can be a block to communication. So certainly when doing these tabletop exercises, you start to realise where the key bits of communication are and they're not often high up in the chain. The real key ones are what's happening on the ground. Um, Yeah. I do quite a lot of work for some sporting events, etc. You can imagine there, the first intimation that something's going wrong or something has happened is going to be somebody literally, probably at a fairly low level, gate guard, security guard, member of staff on the ground. It's getting that information to where it needs to, to go to make things happen in the proper order. And there's, there's the nub of the whole thing, it's communication. Let me, that's, that's excellent, David. Let, let me just give you one example of this. Because somebody once said to me that the first rule of crisis communications for a company is to keep in touch with the public mood. Don't do or say stuff that's really going to irritate people. And I think, you know, you have to remember, and I guess this is with my sort of journalist hat on, that words are freighted with meaning. And let, let me just give you one example of this. Uh, I don't want to talk in too much sort of grey areas. Let's let's hone in on something specific. There was an incident a few couple of years ago with United Airlines where, I don't know, you may have been in this situation where they overfill a flight, um, they need to get more people on, uh, and, you know, you're offered, it's happened to me once, you're offered a free flight if you take the next flight or you're offered a bit of money and so forth. And United Airlines, they overfilled the flight and needed to get more people on, but they'd actually put people on board. And just to cut, cut, you probably remember this story, but to cut to the chase, they actually sent on security to haul people off the flight, one of whom was a doctor, um, Dr. David Dow, and he was hauled off this flight. And everyone sat there on on the aircraft with their smartphones, of course, and I'm sure smartphones have a lot, cause you a lot of problem, David. But, you know, there they are sat with their smartphones, so they're taking video, they're taking snapshots of this doctor literally being hauled off the flight. And, of course, they're on the ground, so they have contact with the Internet, and it goes viral almost immediately. And so the chief executive gets up to apologize 
apologize for this. And this is two sentences from his apology. This is an upsetting event to all of us here at United. I apologize for having to reaccommodate these customers. So let's just unpack that for a second. So the first sentence is, this is an upsetting event to all of us here at United. I'm pretty sure it was fairly upsetting to the doctor who was physically hauled off the flight. And the second one is, I apologize for having to reaccommodate those customers. So David Dow, Dr. Dow, don't worry, you're not being hauled off the flight. You're merely being reaccommodated. I mean, I just can't imagine a worse response. So ultimately, I assume the, the crisis comms team got hold of it and then he issued another apology which we have committed to our customers and our employees that we're going to fix what's broken so this never happens again which is what they should have said or something like it you know right right away so i think you know people remember the first statement not the second well that could be that could be true claire that's a good point as well yeah point you made there on the use of cameras um actually well, I suppose perhaps I've been long inured to the fact that the first thing that, that the protest community will do is put a camera in your face. I think that's a jolly good thing. I think it imposes certain standards of behaviour on everybody, including, of course, the protesters. Now, well, and of course, police have body cams all the time now as well, which is so. relatively now, new. Body cams are all very well, but I, 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 particular, I, I remember a particular incident a few years ago. <laughs> the gentleman says, listen to this, forgive me, but he is small and rotund, a, a little like the fat controller from Thomas the Tank Engine. His body cam recorded in perfect audio detail his interaction with a particularly aggressive protester who was actually assaulting him at the time and how he dealt with this. Um, Unfortunately, the video of this consisted of clouds scudding across the sky (laughs) due to the shape of his chest. So what we always do when any operation is planned, when any interaction goes on, we have EGT, evidence gathering teams. That is a separate cameraman with obviously an assistant to mind their back. Now, that cuts both ways. It's very, very useful for evidential purposes. But what it is vitally important for is a communications tool for when you're planning operations, when you're training people, and when you're trying to explain to your clients that when you have a problem, this is how it is dealt with. And it's, it is a very particularly useful tool. It concentrates people's minds wonderfully as well. Um, so I, I, I have no problem with video. In fact, I, I very much welcome it as a modern development. It is excellent. It, well, there is, it, it's often misinformation is often something that needs to be dealt with during a crisis, isn't it? I mean, quite so. I, I know on one of your uh, recent projects, there was video taken that was presented in one way to accommodate the story of the protesters. But the truth of the matter was somewhat different. So how can organisations deal with that kind of misinformation? Well, it's it, it comes. It's again, our central theme, communication and miscommunication. Quite simply, when it comes to now, obviously, the enforcement officer is acting generally for a client in the action. And it's not it's it's not for us to go publishing things on YouTube. That's not something we do. EGT, evidence gathering team. But the video evidence is there and available. So as far as as far as it goes, the client is at, is, is at liberty to, to use that in their community, in their in their media communication. And again, the United Airlines thing demonstrated don't rush to communicate. Get your crisis management team to deal with it. Yeah, they are trained to do this. And certainly when it comes to enforcement. Now, again, the communication issue is the contact between the press and the public and what's happening on the ground.
quite often there'll be enforcement officers there. Now they they are all trained how to how to communicate properly with third parties, with the press. Generally, with a major operation, the client will have a, a proper a, a media-facing media team in place, and it is the job of the enforcement officer, if asked, point them in that direction. You know, it, it, they're not there to give it to give interviews. They don't give interviews, but they don't sit there and say no comment with a hand up. They simply say you need to get in contact with X, Y, or Z. And quite frequently they have cards that they have a card to hand out because people won't remember a phone number they're given or a web address. They'll simply have a card, a pre-printed card saying, you know, this this is who to contact for media information. Yeah, I think just picking up on a couple of things you said there, David, very interesting. I mean, I think from a an organisation that is caught in a crisis and there is misinformation, and God knows there's enough misinformation spread on social media, somehow they have to create, become a source of truth. Uh, and that can be very difficult because they won't always want to tell everybody everything about a crisis. But I think there are things they can do. Obviously, they need to have media monitoring pl- in place. They need to see what's being said about them, particularly on on social media. Now, bigger organizations will have their own social media monitoring um, departments. But for smaller organizations, that can be very difficult. I mean, the, the point being that if false information is being spread, then you need to get on top of that immediately it's it, you know it's going to be difficult for you to stop it being spread but you need to put your side of the story it's what we sometimes call the information gap and that's why or I, I agree with you David when you say you shouldn't communicate too quickly but you don't want to be too quiet too quickly particularly when you see misinformation being spread you do need to take action and I'm not talking about getting a sl- you know in a slanging match on social media but I do mean about putting out your side of the story so that this information gap that I'm talking about isn't filled by other people. It's filled by the firm's narrative telling you what they are actually doing. Because often firms do take too long um, to communicate. And I think, you know, the speed with which you communicate can be an indicator of how prepared you are to respond to an emergency and that action is being taken. So, how, what part? That's does an media interesting training? point. Oh. You go, Claire, Claire. Talk to us. Talk to I was going to say, what part does media training play in all of that, Jim? Ah, oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's big. Obviously, it's important. I suppose. Now, I know you're all going to jump on me for this because I do this. So, obviously, it's important to me. But I, I, I think I think it is important. I mean, let's face it. Some people are better at talking to the press than others. And that that is absolutely for sure. But I think the important thing is is to. And I think also a lot of chief executives who are very very busy and people who are more likely to speak to the press oh I don't have time for this but actually it can be taught really quite quickly and the important thing is to get people in front of a camera and to see how they respond and I tend to create sort of scenarios and give them some training and we go we get them on camera I mean one of the just just very quickly on on uh, on media training I mean just some basic rules that people need to know it's one thing that astonishes me that nobody ever asks a reporter what the questions are going to be now I know that some reporters may not what tell you what all the questions are going to be but it's certainly worth asking and thereafter the kind of classic media training thing is you need to have three or four 
messages that you are going to get across, come what may. And so, you know, you, you don't want to be a slippery person. You don't want to be a slippery politician. You should answer the questions if you can. And then you bridge to the messages that you want to get across. And just, just sorry to talk too much, but just picking up one thing that David said is that, all right, I agree that it's not always the chief executive who speaks and it can be the media team. But if an organization is caught up with a big crisis, has, has a big crisis, then ultimately the chief executive is going to have to speak. And you want to know that that person is, you know, capable of doing that job, can face the press and can speak, you know, uh, in a sympathetic and empathetic manner. So that that person does certainly need to be uh, media trained. And just the one thing to remember with the media, the camera is always running, the microphone is always on, and the reporter is always listening, even when you think the interview is over. <laughs> and I would right. echo that. Now, there is, in any operational plan I write for a major op, and some of these run, including all the appendices with risk assessments and method statements, they run to well over 250 pages. There is a large section entitled Media Communication. But it doesn't just cover the media, because now, in the days of streaming social media, you will find the protesters themselves are very adept at conducting ad hoc interviews. And then, quite frequently, in fact, there is, I think, floating about on the Internet, there still is some fairly interesting video of me interacting with um, protesters who are being removed under a compulsory purchase order from a major infrastructure site and obviously are quite aggrieved at this. And their spokesperson decides to, to try and conduct an in-depth in questioning of me. Now, I'm not there to represent the client. I am, however, an officer of the court. And to stand there like a wooden cigar store Indian is not appropriate behaviour. These people have a right to know under what authority they're being removed, what will happen, and how it will go ahead. And so these are the, if you like, these are the messages that I need to get over. And they'll, they'll alter their, their frame of reference, their frame of questioning. But I, I tend to stick to my guns. <laughs> there was a point during this where you could see a guy had lost the will to live because he was simply getting the same answer back. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to go about it. These are your rights. It does take, I think, quite a lot of experience. Now I've been doing, I say I've been doing this for 40 years. Not bad for a job that was supposed to last six months, but, um, Part of the reason I've done it for 40 years is every situation is different, but one one does learn it. Now, it can be taught, and this is where certainly my more senior officers are trained and experienced in, in dealing with inquiries at all level, generally from protesters, but certainly from the client side, I do worry when you and when we're in the planning stage and they haven't got anything formal in place for dealing with media inquiries because it can be a problem. And also, one of the other communication issues that comes up, in the same vein, this might be worth carrying on with this, is when you're dealing with activists and protesters who are, are trying to prevent the business from operating or what have you, they will have their own narrative. And what they will also do is they will mobilise supporters to inundate your switchboard with calls. Um, and they will also do things like um, contact the health and safety executive and say, you know, there are, there are people dying here. Well, it's all rubbish, but of course the HSE are under an obligation to investigate. Um, you know, again, major operations, they know this is coming because we, we liaise with them beforehand. They've seen our operational plans and so they can deal with it accordingly. But all these things need to be considered at a planning stage. 
and they need to be communicated to the right parties because otherwise it can catch people by surprise who are not expecting it. And social media is obviously a, a, a tool used very extensively by all the protesters. We've, we've certainly found that Twitter is, is a very favourite platform. Abs- uh, absolutely. Globalising, I mean, I- yeah. I, 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 yeah, I would absolutely um, endorse that. And I think the important thing is that part of your plan, part of your crisis plan, social me- there must be a social media plan as well. You know, we need to know who's monitoring, monitoring social media. And I, I think the thing to say here is that it, it, so these days th- things have really changed with, with, with the advent of social media. Now you're kind of communicating with your audiences. You're not just communicating to your audiences. It's a lot less sort of top down, if you will. And I think, you know, particularly for organizations that are caught up in a crisis, it's all about listening to your stakeholders and responding to them sometimes, you know, individually. And I know that that's that's a big call for small companies. But, you know, for large organizations who have a social media team, then that's doable. But for small firms, it can be tough. But I mean, just three very quick general rules for dealing with, you know, on social media is don't get involved in a slanging match. You can't win that. Try and answer questions if you can, because if you answer one question, other people, especially if you use the right hashtags and so forth, other people will be looking at those answers and that will be useful. And and basically, it's back to this misinformation thing. You need to correct factual errors or mistakes using social media. And sorry, just one final thing here. I think, you know, social media, a social media pylon is, is a horrible thing and social media is full of negativity and all kinds of horrors but it is a good way for an organization to reach its most important stakeholders straight away. So just, you know, you can just put out some message that you're aware that there's a crisis underway and you have a plan in place, and then you may direct people to your website or whatever it might be. But it's a good way to to communicate directly with your most important audiences. I imagine also communicating with all your employees uh, during a crisis is an important thing as well. Yeah, just just very quickly on that before David comes in. Absolutely. And I think we quite often organizations think very carefully about how they're dealing with external stakeholders like the press and so forth. And sometimes, you know, it's, you know, they forget to inform their staff. And what you don't want in a circumstance like that is the staff getting all their information from social media because, you know, social media is going to be really toxic and so forth. So, Organizations need to make sure that staff are getting good, dispassionate information from the company. And this is where training days and tabletop exercises come in and familiarization, even when there's not a formal exercise on. Because we've got offices all over the country, a local officer will generally make himself known to our clients who've got a contingency plan in place. And every three months or so we'll visit. They then become part of the furniture. And so... When something happens, the, the staff and employees there are aware that there are plans in place, which in itself, which in itself, they may be part of those plans, they may not be part of those plans, but that in itself does tend to damp down the, the, the forest fire caused, you know, when, when a crisis does happen with miscommunication. Some of it deliberate, some of it accidental, some of it well-intentioned, some of it mal-intentioned. But it, it's, it is, yes, the, the, uh, the internet has created its own social conditions, but it was always there. 
In the old days, it was the man in the pub, in the corner of the pub, with half a pint of lager muttering under his breath. Now he or she sits behind a keyboard. Yeah, but the difference yeah, the is, hasn't changed. It's, yeah, that may be true, David, but the reach has changed phenomenally. You know, one bloke sitting with his pint of mild in a pub might speak to three people, you know, <laughs> with the right hashtags and, and the, an interesting topic. You can reach thousands of people in seconds. And I think, you know, that's what's driven this. And it's a huge problem for organizations to keep, you know, to keep up to speed with this because it, because the reach is so massive. Yeah, I mean, rumours fly, but the truth trudges, I'm afraid. It's, and, and having a plan in place is the only a communication, a good communications plan, pre, not, not just pre-written, but regularly checked and revised is the only way to, to, to stand a chance of countering that. I mean, look at, look at the, the BP oil leak in, 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 the, in, the, in the Southern Gulf, you know, the Florida Gulf. Well, you know, when, where the chief executive's on holiday and says, oh, I wish it was all over, I could get back on holiday. I mean, well, he, said, he said, I, and now he apologised and said, now I want my life back. <laughs> yeah, didn't go down well. I think he resigned shortly afterwards, didn't he? Yeah, he didn't do too well. <laughs> uh, look, I tell you what, Claire, just, uh, can I just very briefly just lay out what I think, and David can come in on this as well, is on what should be in a crisis plan, because we've been talking in general terms about that. And I just wonder if I could just, it won't take, yes, take long, just, just, just just sort of lay out what I think people should should have in a crisis plan. As, I, as I've said already, it should be a series of checklists, I think. I think that's the best way for it to go. So you need to assemble your crisis team. Um, you need to know who's in the crisis team and what roles and responsibilities they all have. Obviously, these days, a lot of people will be joining online. They won't actually be in a room together as they would have been uh, in days gone by. Then I'm going to get a bit military here, but then I think you need an incident report or a sit rep, a situation report. So it's all... So it's all why? those W questions. Who, what, when, where, why. It's funny, I, when I when I first got into crisis management, I, I didn't know what a sit rep was. Again, I was just a journalist, but I certainly recognized those questions because the who, what, when, where, why questions are the, the questions that journalists are all taught to ask as well. So it amounts to the same thing. Then you need to have a series of boilerplate statements, comms that we've been talking about today. Now, you're never going to use one of these boilerplate statements exactly as it is but what it does it allows comms people to have something there it's not a you're not starting from a blank piece of paper and those boilerplate statements can then be adapted um to to fit the situation that they find themselves in then you need to identify the key audiences that um you're, you're going to be communicating with during the um during during the uh, crisis and then you need to develop you know q and a's lines to take press releases and so forth and you need to nominate a, a spokesperson who's actually going to speak to the press whether that's going to be the chief executive or it's going to be be someone else and just one other thing about that chief executive thing what's quite good is if you don't use your chief executive to begin with it in in an incident is that <laughs> if things don't go so well initially with your first apology 
apology or statement or whatever it is, you can then, and you haven't used the chief executive, you can get the chief executive in to take another tack and hopefully it will go a little better. Because the problem is once you use the chief executive, journalists and the public will think, well, why aren't we hearing from the chief executive? That's who we're expecting to hear from. And just just very quickly, um, the other things you need, obviously you need media monitoring in place. You may well need call takers in place if you have a call center or whatever it might be. And a really important one, and this is seem, might seem like quite a lowly job um, in, in, in an, during an incident, but you need the secretariat. You need a note taker who is logging all the information that's coming in. And particularly, you need to log all the actions and decisions taken by the organization, because in a really big crisis, there may be an inquiry that follows. So you need to know what actions and decisions were taken. And I, and I think what this one might be one for you, Claire, actually. Also, you need to think about your website as well, um, because uh, the first place journalists are going to go to in a crisis is the company's website. And if it's, everything is lovely and they've got ads there and all smiling faces and there's no kind of reference to the problem that the company's having, that's not a good look from a journalist's point of view or indeed the public. So you might need what we call a dark website or some other website to be able to, to put up there. There yeah. you go. I would, Anything I would from you, David, that. to wrap up? <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I'd echo what Jim said. They're, they're very wise counsel. Um, where, you know, my operational plans, obviously, they're, they're more concerned with the doing, but they always are prefaced with an executive overview, which is really should form major material for the media team so they actually so they can actually speak with some authority as to what steps are being taken to deal with the crisis what is going on on the ground but the point about logging event logging is absolutely vital obviously in my job as an officer of the court everything we do is logged in detail because it may be used in evidence in future but what is really useful and comes back to tabletop exercises at the end of the operation i prepare a synopsis report this is what we did this is what happened and from that following you've dealt with the crisis it's all over it's not all over the most important thing to do is a lessons learned because that will save it ever happening again in the future if it works really well but at the very least it'll mean that you're able to deal with it much more efficiently in future and the key to the whole thing is communications right down from the enforcement officers on the ground dealing with 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 the source of the crisis or the emergency services dealing with the source of the crisis right the way through to the chief executive, if the communication isn't there, at the very best, it won't work as well. At the very worst, it will be an absolute unmitigated disaster. Some of the stuff we see on, on TV every day, you look at it and you think, oh dear, why did you not? But of course, communication is the only way you're going to do that. We all have great ideas, but if they stay in here, they don't, in our head, they don't work. Okay, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you both very much for giving up your time to join us on today's podcast. And uh, thank you. And um, till next time. Thanks very much, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, David. Goodbye. <laughs>